Oh, kia ora koutou katoa and welcome to the week that was for the week's end, a hoon around the political economy with someone who is focused on not just New Zealand's political economy, but has seen a few treasury reports from other parts of the world and parliamentary goings on and various thoughts about how to run societies and economies. Welcome into this hoon to Max Rashbrook. Good to see you. Thanks, Bernard. Great to be here. Yeah, and I can see in the background in your home office, because I'm in my home office too, is it Mount Vic in the background or is it Karori? It's Mount Vic, yeah, yeah. So I live just off the terrace, so my view is back over, over Wellington towards Mount Vic. And I can see the air is much clearer in the background. And it's interesting during lockdown how just the environment changes. You wrote a great piece in today's Dominion Post. You can see it on stuff and I'll put a link to it into the email that goes out with this podcast about the weird nostalgia (laughs) for for lockdowns and why maybe we shouldn't embrace it too much. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, this came out of my reflection on obviously being back in lockdown at the moment and thinking about the last lockdown and one of the things that had struck me at that time was how a lot of people particularly in my circles were proclaiming this as a an event that changed everything that we were never going to go back to the old normal that we're going to build back better and all the rest of that and of course that you know didn't really happen we just got the old economy plus a bit of home working and also which is great but not exactly transformative and also there was this sort of this odd sense that people had some people had really enjoyed the lockdown sense of there was all this bird life and it was incredibly peaceful and quiet and you could hear all the bird song and everything and i got a bit frustrated with that because you Firstly, you don't need a lockdown to have all that stuff. And as I say in the column, I live on the edge of the Wellington CBD and there are kaka flying past my window all the time. I have kiridu in my back garden. There are grey warblers. There are all kinds of birds. And sort of the point of the piece was, well, don't, don't pin all your hopes for change on a massive pandemic. Actually, you can restore bird life over 10 or 20 years just by boring, old, slow, incremental change. And that's not as exciting as theorizing about, does the pandemic change everything? But it's actually extremely effective. And you make a good point about things like public transport and cycling and walking. It's interesting that the air quality in Auckland in the last week has dramatically improved, as, as you'd expect. And um, the streets are much safer, you feel more relaxed cycling and walking around because there's hardly any cars. And at some point in theory, we're going to have to get to something like that. We're going to get anywhere near carbon zero by 2050, let alone the more aggressive emissions that we need to keep our climate from warming much more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is pretty much already baked in. Yeah, I I get your point. What do you think... um, Is there another opportunity for the government to take advantage of... Never waste a good crisis, whether they should use this latest one as a chance to not waste it, because I think they wasted the last one. Yeah, I think they, as as far as the joke runs, yeah, I mean, they absolutely wasted the crisis. Whether, to what extent one should really take advantage of them, I think is morally complex, because how is that different from the disaster capitalism that people like Naomi Klein criticise, where hard right 
figures take advantage of catastrophes to push through their agenda without scrutiny. Morally, why are those things different? I think what I think they failed to do, I don't think they should have exploited the crisis, but once lockdowns and things were over, I think they should have said, look at what we did by uniting, by coming together, look at how strong we are when we support each other, look at everyone who stayed home so that vulnerable people didn't get COVID and die. Let's take that forward as a new kind of politics. You could have said, for instance, why don't we unite against homelessness? Why don't we have a zero elimination approach to homelessness? Not just get people off the streets, which we did up to a point, but then actually wrap around a whole lot of services for them and build a whole ton of houses so that they're never homeless ever again. But that's the thing that they didn't do. And to answer your question, I don't really see any sign of them doing it again this time. No, because a lot of the rhetoric in the last nine months or so has been about keeping a lid on debt, ensuring that the government gets back to surplus, as the Public Finance Act says they should, after the immediate effects of a crisis. And they're they're doing that. So we're not seeing the um, use of the Crown's balance sheet to solve any of our housing affordability or climate change issues that I can see in any substantial way. And as we've seen with various um, skirmishes around the public transport area, for example, I see this week that Auckland Transport is looking to cut spending on, on, on moves towards public transport because, of course, their fair revenues have fallen <laughs> in the last two weeks. And Auckland and NZTA Waka Kotahi, of course, their revenues from uh, fuel taxes are down. <laughs> There's a very, it's interesting. As soon as the pressure comes on, you revert to those old genes in your DNA about how to do things and the how to do things is cut government spending, make sure you keep debt down, make sure you keep interest rates low, make sure you keep house prices high, make sure that median voters are happy and uh, move along now. And I don't, you're right, I don't see much change in that. But there is, of course, the initial, the immediate crisis to deal with and this week there's been a really interesting debate and I don't want to play up our roles in it, but we had interesting little contributions to make. On uh, Monday uh, and on Tuesday, I think, I um, went out there and asked some questions about when we should eliminate the elimination strategy. And for regular viewers and listeners, it was the most viewed, most responded to most read piece that I'd ever done in the car. And I thought about it before I put it out because I knew I was going to get some blowback. <laughs> Essentially, I was saying, are we all really sure about this elimination strategy into the indeterminate future? Because our emergency medicine system and our contact tracing system is not up to Delta. And we haven't invested nearly enough as nearly enough in the last 18 months to get it up to speed for Delta and uh, let alone over the last 20 years or so. And that means that to do the right thing, we have to lock down frequently and for quite some time before we get to anywhere near a vaccination rate that is um, one that we could think about opening up. And at some point, we're going to have to let go of this rightly and proudly emotional commitment to the elimination strategy. And uh, that's that's a, that's a uncomfortable place to be. And of course, no one wanted to be there. And I hopefully it was rather nuanced in what I said, and that clearly I'm very keen on 
getting above 90% vaccination, and I quite like to have all of the, the kids not to 12 vaccinated as well, before we think about opening up our borders properly and getting out of the very restrictive lockdowns we've got. And I don't think that's going to be until midway through next year. But at some point, we're going to have to, because not just politically, but in a humanitarian sense, and an economic sense, we cannot continue on with these extremely restricted places in MIQ and the potential for every two or three months having a one-month uh, level four lockdown, which shuts down big chunks of the economy. But you had a very good piece in The Guardian, which I enjoyed because it had a wonderful picture of the Hobbiton and Matter Matter, which is one of my love favorite places. <laughs> Tell us about the genesis of your Hobbiton piece, which I'll link to in the in the email. Uh, that was in the Guardian this week. Oh, thanks, thanks, Bernard. That's very kind. I'm I'm interested that you enjoy Hobbiton. I, I can't. I feel like there's a bit of a disparity between the height of a Hobbit's burrow and your own frame. I mean, I say this as a relatively tall person, but nonetheless, yeah, it was a very enjoyable piece to write. I'd just been seeing, I'm not averse to criticism of the government's approach, but I've been seeing a lot of very ill-informed criticism from overseas, particularly right-wing bits of the British media, mocking us for going into lockdown with, quote, just one case. People, there was an opinion piece calling us a mysterious socialist hermit kingdom there was all sorts of stuff and i just thought ah oh, this is getting ridiculous and then a sort of righteous fury sort of tempered with sarcasm i just sat down and just said look i mean all this stuff is ridiculous that we have actually spent less time in lockdown in new zealand far less time in lockdown than most almost any other country certainly much less than britain and there's a vaccine success stories are countries that still have hundreds of people dying a day every day and an enormous toll from long COVID as well which I didn't actually get into in the piece and basically you could sum up a lot of my piece without one of the lines that I particularly enjoyed writing where I said you know, New Zealanders would feel a lot more enthusiastic about in quotes learning to live with COVID if it didn't look so much like learning to die with it and that kind of summarizes the problem for me at the moment yes I'm not sure I totally agree with you about the elimination strategy because certainly at the moment, I think for New Zealand, it's the only game in town. But it is also the problem we face is that I just, I can't see what is the good international role model out there because there doesn't seem to be a way of living with COVID and quote without lots of people dying from it at the moment. Yeah, it's tough. It's so bloody infectious. And as we've seen this week, it looks like 200 cases were created in the four days between someone getting it and us going into lockdown. And we did bloody well <laughs> to go into national hard lockdown four days after the first transmission, which we didn't know about. It took four days for us to work it out and then bang, straight into lockdown. Yeah, we should congratulate, our, pat ourselves on the back pretty much. And of course, I'm not suggesting that we do some sort of crazy Boris Johnson style, open it up, let the bodies stack up exercise i'm saying mid next year once everyone's had a chance to be vaccinated and when i say everyone including the kids and that we have a chance to bolster our emergency care system and our contact tracing system which basically is overwhelmed right now and also try where we can to increase the size of our mq one of the reasons i'm pushing back a little bit at this broad acceptance of elimination apparently forever is that 
there are enormous numbers of New Zealanders, a million overseas. Not all of them want to come back, but there's a bunch of them who are desperate, who are in awful situations. They need to come back to be with parents and family when they die, to come for funerals, to come for weddings and help out with births. And what is the point of living if you can't help your sons and daughters have their kids or be there for your nana when she's in her last day or two? These things really get to people. And when you're applying, you're sitting on a computer screen hitting refresh for three days in a row so that you can get in. You've got to feel for these people. And uh, there's no choice. We have to have this very restricted MIQ system, not only from a resources point of view, and we just don't have the hotel rooms that are properly ventilated or the staff to be able to increase the size of the MIQ system. And I'm sure there's someone in the Bell Ministry of Health and the government who said, actually, even if we had a much, much bigger MIQ system, that just increases the risk that it gets out. And so we have to artificially or in real life actually have to restrict the size of MIQ to make sure that we don't, we don't let it out. As we've seen, one case. And we don't actually, that's the ironic thing, we don't actually know how the hell it happened yet. It could have been someone walking through the foyer of the Crown Plaza, breathing at the wrong time of day. (laughs) And something, a little swirl of air came in through that little gap that's in the one metre section of the plastic and and wood temporary thing up in the gap there. Oh my goodness, we're up against it with Delta. And at some point, we, from a humanitarian point of view, I'm not that sympathetic, frankly, to a whole bunch of businesses saying, oh my God, I'm going to miss out on the conference in Munich next year. Well, fuck off. (laughs) So just dial into the Zoom. But, you know, when you have someone who says, my Nana's dying, and I want to come home and say goodbye, and I want to help my mum and my dad deal with this, or my sister is in real trouble, she's had a baby and there's no support, it's really hard to say no to those people. And that's why, frankly, all the freaking billionaires who come in on the special quota that the government set up with an MIQ can go jump. But this is the guts of it. At some point, we're going to have to open up it's in some way it's just when and how we do it in a that so that it's safe for those people who are most vulnerable and the thing that sort of uh, struck me this week is the clear signs that our vaccination program has not targeted the people who need it most and that would protect all of us the most at maori and pacifica who more than half of the people who have tested positive in this outbreak are from the pacifica community in auckland it's clear that super spreader event with the church in south auckland has been disastrous in large part because many of those people were young they were unvaccinated and they should have been vaccinated um dr rawiri jensen and others were very unhappy a month ago, when the, six weeks ago, when the government said we are going to do the politically acceptable thing, which is ration our vaccines according to age and not if age and medical condition, when it's very clear if you had targeted the Māori and Pacifica community first because there's a much higher risk not only in age terms but also in pre-existing conditions terms you would have had a much better result for everyone and that is for me the tragedy of this week 
But at some point we have to think about it. And one one thing I'm curious about, and I wonder what you think, Max, is what are the variables we need to watch or need to change so that we can think about dropping the elimination strategy into next year? So vaccination rates, although it's interesting the government hasn't given us a target or any sort of number that they want to hoist their flag on. Also, number of ICU beds, how high the capacity is, and and also the, the wait times for people trying to get MIQ spots for you know, humanitarian reasons. What do you think are the things that we should watch over the next sort of six, 12 months? Good. It's an excellent question. It's really tough to know because I think we have to be honest here that no one really knows the answers on this. And that's really difficult and that creates a lot of uncertainty for people. What do I think about all of that? Just firstly, on your point about the vaccinations, I absolutely agree. And one of the most frustrating things is that you've got Pacific health workers and health experts as you said, complaining about the the lack of a strategy to ensure that their population has been vaccinated. And we had these same problems around the lockdown, first time around, not around vaccination, obviously, but around testing and around getting a health response out to those communities. And then actually some really great stuff happened, some innovative stuff happened when Pacifica providers were allowed to, to innovate and to work with their communities in ways that, that work for those communities. And then we seem to have just completely forgotten those lessons. So that's very frustrating. But looking forward, yeah, obviously we do need to ramp up the vaccine program. I've got a bet with someone that will hit 85% of the population by January Woo-hoo. next year. Um, although that's on the old... 16 plus basis. Yeah, although it's a bet with someone who's very good at winning bets, so I'm not, <laughs> I may have picked the wrong one, but, but there we are. Um, and look, and it's going to be really tricky because you mentioned things, vaccines, one thing is reasonably under control, and I do think it's semi under government's control. Sorry, I'm not saying the program is under control. And hesitancy does seem to decline as vaccines get rolled out worldwide, I think, and people see that they're working and things. But, but that's only one part of the puzzle. And some of the other ones are really difficult. Like you mentioned the number of intensive care beds. Well, as, as doctors have been pointing out, having the beds is one thing, but actually the bigger problem is, is actually having ICU staff, people who know how to make that system operate. And those, that is not something that you can just turn around in six months or 18 months even necessarily because you have to train those people and that takes a long time. So that's going to be really difficult. My my overall view is that I think the administration, elimination strategy has been incredibly successful. Only, as I said in my Guardian piece, only 26 people dead is really quite a different number to 130,000 people dead, which is the UK number. So the elimination strategy has put us in an incredibly good position to then think about what we do next, and that's really important. The other thing is that it will, we will have to balance up the humanitarian costs, as you say, of the different options. But we're going to have to think very carefully about those because, yes, there are humanitarian costs to the elimination strategy, principally the effects of lockdown, particularly on people who have very substandard living arrangements, who are overcrowded, who are living with abusive partners, all those kinds of things. But just a couple of days ago, I was having a conversation with a very good friend of mine from the UK who has got long COVID. Mm. And it is pretty debilitating. She got it when she, in the first wave when, when she got COVID. So she's lived with it for 18 months. She's now fully vaccinated. She, she goes for a bike ride that's slightly too long. She has a week in bed, basically, because she's just 
so exhausted the next day she can't get up. She'll have days where she just has to go to sleep in the middle of the day. It's like an appalling autoimmune disorder. Hasn't totally ruined her life, amazingly. She's able to keep working and things, but it is appalling. And hers is not the worst variant of long COVID. And look, this is all emerging, but the data, very rough data I've seen is, you know, anything between 10%, 25% of people who get COVID end up with some kind of long COVID. So we're going to have to put, and once you start putting those costs into your weighing up of abandoning elimination, the calculation may start to look not nearly so good in terms of shifting towards something else. So I think we're going to have to be very careful if we do move to a different way of trying to handle this this appalling Delta variant. Yeah, we start from a much better position than everyone else. And you're right, we should remember that, I wouldn't call them first world problems. We were bloody lucky, I actually think. I think it was an accidentally on purpose decision back in the third week of March to lock down hard. And the success of the uh, lockdowns here depended in part on the extraordinary connection the Prime Minister had with New Zealand, the fact that we had a very simple governance system, unlike in Australia with its federal and state systems. We had a simple message that was believed, that people got to. And unlike in Australia, where they are in an awful position in the last week or two, for example, in Western Sydney, they've got tents set up outside the big hospitals that have that are full up now with COVID patients. They have effectively a fight to the death politically going on between the states and the federal government. Scott Morrison is obviously the national liberal guy as the federal prime minister who is saying we need to open up after 70% and let's go for it. And Gladys Berejiklian, the New South Wales prime minister, premier, is saying, yep, let's make sure we can open up this economy. In fact, today, I'm still gobsmacked at hearing this. She is announcing that the schools open up in the first week of October. Oh, my God. And it's awful. And then, so you see, Western Australia, Victoria, Queensland, all run by Labour premiers, saying, uh, you're not my Prime Minister, mate. You've decided to ditch this elimination strategy. Not on my watch. So you've got this horrible clash of communications. Just imagine if you're Australian thinking, okay, what are the grown-ups telling me? Ah, they're telling me two things. Bugger. And it's, you can see why there's a lot less compliance with the lockdowns. There's a lot less, there's a lot more hesitancy. They've also had the AstraZeneca hiccup. And I know from speaking to my brothers who live in Australia with their families that there is an awful lot of exhaustion with the lockdowns, which have gone on for much longer than than ours did. And an element of, ah, please get us back to normal. So, for example, what's interesting in the polls, not that the polls always are the right thing or we should care too much about them, but frankly, it's what the politicians prioritise just about above everything else. The focus grouping in the median polling in Australia is showing 7 out of a 10, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria, are saying, God, end this nightmare, just open the hell up. As soon as I get vaccinated, my kids get vaccinated, then we can open it up. And in New Zealand, it's the other way around. So 7 in 10 are saying, 
no end to elimination, no opening up until we're properly vaccinated. So it's a really interesting contrast between Australia and New Zealand here. In part, I actually think, driven by the accident of history, which is that Rupert Murdoch pulled out of New Zealand in 1990 for purely financial reasons. And you have Rupert Murdoch's two tabloids in Sydney and Melbourne preaching for openness and sacrifice the poor. And in New Zealand, luckily, apart from, you could argue, in, in actually... I have to give the New Zealand Herald credit. They have not gone all murdoch on us. But the stuff, obviously, through the rest of the country are being a lot more sensible about it. And so you have this broad consensus behind the Prime Minister in favour of elimination, which is part of the reason I was keen to, you know, put my hand up and say, hang on a minute, what does this actually mean? Because, and I asked today about, for example, if we get really stressed, uh, and a couple of days ago it was looking a bit like it, we're behind on the, on the testing and the contact tracing, we were being overwhelmed with people who were positive, who needed to be isolated, and we didn't have enough space for them, essentially took MIQ spots off people who were coming in stopped giving out MIQ slots to others, to, to people beyond the emergency ones. And it seems pretty much there's a whole bunch of people who can't even get those. And so one of the options is to actually stop flights completely, which was suggested by the Otago epidemiologist last week. I asked the Prime Minister and she said, mm, it's the last resort really because we can't stop New Zealanders from coming in. But at some point, point you know, this is the thing at some point it's got the costs of these very closed borders these very big restrictions on events the weddings the funerals all of that sort of stuff it just starts to get people and you mentioned rightly the issue with long COVID I've got uh, a colleague's daughter is came back from Britain and has basically been out of action for six months and has consumed the family's focus on all of that stuff. But also, mental health-wise, in New Zealand at least, there's a whole bunch of people, as you say, who are vulnerable in difficult situations family-wise. They may be alone. Loneliness is just a, a real thing in all of this. And I do wonder how long we last. I hope it's for, for quite some time until next year when we can win you that chocolate fish, Max, for 85%. Was it 85%? Yeah, yeah the, bet's for a little, the bet's for a little bit more than a chocolate fish, unfortunately. But yeah, that is 85% was what I staked my reputation on. Uh, that's, that's great. Now, the other thing that's brewing away at the moment is how the government is responding to this locally in terms of support for businesses and for individuals. And I don't know if you had a chance to hear or follow the reporting on Carmel Cepoloni's appearance before the Select Committee this week on how the government is responding to people who are more vulnerable, beneficiaries, people on low incomes, people who are renters. I wrote a piece for the spin-off this week which said, I'm in shock that... The government, within a day of the first case, handed over basically a billion dollars to New Zealand businesses, no questions asked, again, and yet is not talking about increasing benefits, is not talking about doubling the energy payments, the winter energy payments like they did last time. There's no real suggestion that the government has understood 
what has gone on in the last year, which is an enormous widening of inequality and a just fundamental unfairness in the way that the government responded for those who, frankly, rich, they're now $400 billion richer, and those who are poor, any extra cash they got from the government was gobbled up in high rents. And I just wonder what the response will be in the left, on in the corners of the government that are more focused on this, whether the government is listening or understands or whether they have to bother. Yeah, and it's something that infuriates and, and baffles me. There are some things that the government doesn't do, and I understand why they don't do them, because they're politically difficult, and that's understandable up to a point. But things like continuing the mistakes of the wage subsidy really baffle me, and I thought your piece on this was excellent. Of course, I think everyone accepts this. First time round, you get the money out the door. Absolutely, that's the priority. Brilliant, worked really well on that level. MSD have already been hauled over the calls, coals by the Auditor General for not following up really in any thorough manner on, you know, basically fraud in the original wage subsidy. They said that, I think they claimed they'd been auditing the first round of claimants <laughs> of the wage subsidy. You see, this discussion between you and me... Sending an email saying, Exactly. This discussion yeah. between you and me is an audit. That's what an MSD audit is, a yeah. phone call. Saying, is everything all right, basically? It's just, it was incredibly barefaced cheek of them. Actually outrageous, I think, on MSD's part to claim that they'd audited the scheme in any sense. And, and I should declare an, an interest here. One of the people who's pursuing this issue quite rightly is Grant Nelson from the Gamma Foundation. And I received funding in the past from the Gamma Foundation to work on my previous book. So I just want to put that out there. And regardless of that, I think the Gamma Foundation are absolutely right to pursue this because surely at the very least, MSD should have written to everyone who got the wage subsidy and said, can you provide proof that you actually met the conditions in terms of that 30 40% decline in takings? And I don't know what the legal position is. I don't know if MSD could then actually force anyone to pay it back. But at the very least, they should be ramping up the threshold of embarrassment and, and bringing all the pressure to bear that is possible in terms of socially embarrassing people. And I also think that surely in the, the period since the last lockdown, the last 18 months, they should have thought about how to do the wage subsidy better so that it achieves its aims of getting money out the door, but you also are protected against fraud. I and mean, we're not doing that for the wage subsidy. And as you point out in your piece, we take an incredibly tough line on beneficiaries the minuscule amount of fraud that they perpetrate, why do we not have the same approach towards businesses? Yes, I'm quite happy to call it out as, frankly, racism, institutional racism, in which the arms of government believe, or have begun to believe, probably for a long time and forever you could say, that people who are down on their luck, people who need support, People who are not from the same class or race, frankly, as us don't deserve it as much. And the entitlement, which I've heard, what I've actually smelt back from people who took the money in the last year is extraordinary. And uh, I think it's, it's the role of people like ourselves in the spinoff to put our hands up and say, hang on a minute, this is wrong. Because unfortunately, we have seen a lot of those people who took the money and r ran are out there 
operating in public in New Zealand as brands, as people that want to be trusted and will sell you things and hope that you come back through the door the next day. Harvey Norman, for example, took the wage subsidies and millions of dollars worth of wage subsidies in New Zealand and in Australia and outright, bluntly refused to pay it back. Jerry Harvey, a billionaire, has said it was there, I took it, I needed it at the time, I probably don't need it now, but the rules say I don't have to give it up, give it back, so ya boo sucks to you. At some point, the social license that businesses have to operate in our economy has to dry up. And I don't think the government had the social license to go ahead and pay out two weeks Basically, we're talking a billion dollars because they gave out half a billion dollars in two days. And it's interesting the Prime Minister has said this afternoon that it will be extended for another two weeks. That's four weeks. We're, we're talking a couple of billion dollars here. Now, a couple of billion dollars, you know, is not chump change. It is a lot of money. Now, the $13 billion that was paid out last year and probably wasn't needed, we now know ended up in, in businesses' bank accounts. That is a lot of money. If we'd spread it out equally amongst our 5 million residents, we'd be talking about $2,800 each. For a lot of people in tough situations, that is paying off the loan shark. It is making sure that you can provide food for the next three months. It is a substantial amount of money. And where did it go? It's sitting in an account in one of the big four banks or uh, indirectly in the Reserve Bank settlement accounts. And for me, this is just mind-boggling that the government's gone ahead and done this and at the same time appears not to have come up with something on the other side, hoping, maybe, or expecting that no one would notice. Remember, of course, no one has really called bullshit on this in the mainstream media. And I, I don't want to be too grumpy about this because many of the people I've worked with, and I've worked for both the main news, newspaper companies and have, and have worked for various <laughs> news organisations at various times. They're just trying to get a, get by and make sure the salaries get paid and they can go home and do their things with their families too. And I get that. But Harvey Norman, who has these wraparound ads on pretty much every second newspaper in the country, that needs to be called bullshit on. And uh, anyway, I'm having a crack, so that's good. Max, what else are you keeping an eye on at the moment that you think we should we should know about and that uh, you'll be watching over the next three or four weeks before you're back on? Oh, do you know, actually, can I just pick up on something that, sure, you, yeah. that you said about the... I mean, you're absolutely right about the discrimination and the classes, and I think here a lot about the research that Lisa Marriott from Victoria University has done, and, and you might well be familiar with that, about the way the difference in the treatment of tax fraud versus benefit fraud, and she's researched years of this. And it's so profound, welfare fraud is infinitely more likely to be prosecuted, even though it's the amounts are much, much smaller. But what's also really striking is she's gone and looked at the judgments that judges make, and even the language is so different. Welfare fraudsters get absolutely pilloried by judges in the strongest terms and told how awful they are. In the judgments on people who have tax fraud, white collar fraud, and hundreds of thousands of dollars, people still get described as a pillar of the community and all these sorts of things. The, the class prejudice in an ostensibly most neutral part of the New Zealand political system is 
really striking. And so what we're seeing with the wage subsidy, you're right, is just the continuation of that. And also the lack of innovation of this government. I would like to see, there'll, there'll be a review of the health response to coronavirus in the long run, or already have been, that'll get picked over and rightly. I don't know who's going to do a proper economic evaluation of the government's response to COVID, and maybe I should do it. <laughs> someone, <laughs> someone independently should do it, because they re- we really need to look back and say, what were the right decisions economically? What were the wrong ones? Because other countries were doubling benefit payments. They were making direct cash payments like the US. It's stuff that's actually more innovative in a way than us. They were, you know, versus there are elements of the wage subsidy that work really well. So I think they need to be held to account on that pretty forcibly. What else has been on my mind. One news story that really struck me that didn't get a lot of coverage was a report that came out that looked back at the Montreal Protocol and the banning of CFCs in the Mm -hmm. 80s. And it said not only has that been a huge success in terms of starting to close the hole in the ozone layer, but because CFCs also had a greenhouse gas effect, banning them has been a huge boost to the fight against climate change. There are things that various technical reasons basically accelerate the effects of, of global warming, CFCs. And I think there's an argument that the Montreal Protocol is one of the best things we've ever done in the fight against climate change, albeit it happened before people really knew about climate change. So they've made some estimates, like by the end of the century, the world could be a whole degree, wow. would be a whole degree warmer if we had if we hadn't eliminated, virtually eliminated CFCs. Yeah, it's really remarkable. And do you know what, it, And but what was interesting, because I've done a bit of research on this, was at the time CFC manufacturers did all the things you'd expect them to do. And they said, oh, this will be disastrous. There's no way you can ban CFCs. Look at all the things we use them for. This will be catastrophic. But because the world was probably maybe a little bit tougher on companies back um, in the early 80s, and also because they were one industry and it was easier to ignore them, Everyone the world just said, no, we're banning them. And of course, what happened was that immediately, or probably even before the ban, those companies, and DuPont was in the, in the lead, had innovated. <laughs> and of course they had. They just found other ways of doing all the stuff that they'd done with CFCs and better ways, more efficient ways, and obviously much less polluting ways. And it really made me think, if we want to get more stuff done vis-a-vis climate change, and also, frankly, if we want more innovation – Maybe we just need to start banning more things. <laughs> that's, that's good. And the irony of that time, the early 80s, is that this was driven by Reagan and Thatcher. Thatcher was a, yeah. a right-on scientist turned politician who wanted to solve climate change. Oh, the Ab- irony. Absolutely, absolutely. The United States, it's almost impossible to imagine now, the United States was a leader in the Montreal Protocol, they were one of the driving forces. Some, sometimes I just want to go back to the past, 1980s. I was much thinner, had more hair, it was great. <laughs> hey, Max, it's been a, a real uh, pleasure talking to you on a Friday afternoon, chewing the fat over at the political economy. Great fun. Make sure that our readers on the kaka jump into your Guardian and stuff pieces. I much appreciate the time and look forward to talking to you in a month or two's time. And stay safe. I see the sun's gone down by behind you let's hope the sun shines this week of lockdown it's been a real pleasure kakete i know this has been the week that was for the week's end on the kaka i'm bernard hickey thank you max rashbrook thank you very much